do these words sound familiar? We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Have you heard that before? If you have, it's because you live in the United States, because it's from our Constitution, for those of you that are American citizens. I want us to think about that last phrase that I read to you, and the pursuit of happiness. And this country was formed some 243 years ago. It started with one of its core values and what it calls unalienable rights as the pursuit of happiness. So now, 243 years later, how are we doing at pursuing happiness as a nation? Do you look out every week and think, the United States is a happy people. We are defined and marked on social media by happiness every day. Newscasts in the evening when I go to bed, before I go to bed, they begin with happiness. The top reports on your Sunday newspapers, etc., etc. How about you individually? If you're an American citizen, whether you are or not, are you a happy person? I heard this week that Around each year, almost 4,000 books are published that are about finding happiness here in America. Well, what can we learn from this? What does this reveal about our country that each year we're pumping out 4,000 books in search of happiness? Well, it definitely shows we're exercising our inalienable rights to pursue happiness. We're, we're still pursuing, it sounds like. And I don't know if we've quite found it if we're continuing to publish so many books year after year. Could it be that maybe we haven't found it? Or, or maybe, maybe it's only about the pursuit and happiness can never be found altogether. As it was said in the 2007 movie starring Will Smith, entitled The Pursuit of Happiness, he said maybe happiness is something that we can only pursue, and maybe we can actually never have it, no matter what. Wonder how many of us believe those words. Happiness is only the pursuit. The only right we have is the pursuit of happiness, because happiness itself cannot be had in this life. Well, way before the latest self-help book was published, way before this movie came out in 2007, and way before the Declaration of Independence was signed, a Hebrew poem was written by an unknown human author, and for thousands of years, both Jews and Christians have attributed this poem not just to a human, but to God who inspired and gave us the words to help us understand how happiness, in fact, can be had in this life and even more so in the life to come. So if you're interested 
to hear not what the latest self-help book says or the most recent movie at the cinema, but what God himself has spoken and has endured for thousands of years. Let's open our Bibles to Psalm chapter 1, the first psalm in the book. That can be found, by the way, on page 448 if you're using these black Bibles that we've provided in front of you. I'm going to read the psalm, and then we're going to have a little teaching on it. So let's read the psalm first. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on it, his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And as I read this psalm, and as we begin this sermon on Psalm 1, I'm sure some of you might be wondering, why are we talking about happiness Number one. And number two, why are we not studying Matthew chapter five? I thought this church goes through books of the Bible and we had just finished Matthew chapter four. So let's proceed, Matthew chapter five. For any of you wondering that, or just for sake of context, the first word in this psalm. So look down, Psalm one, you see the word there. In English, it's blessed. The word in the original Hebrew is asher. Do you think you can say asher? Asher, yes? Oh, good job, any of you that tried. This word is translated into Greek as makarios, makarios, okay? That one's a little harder to say, obviously for me. Uh, Makarios, that's better, makarios. This word, blessed, that's translated into Greek as makarios, is the word that you will see again and again And again, as Jesus opens his most famous message in Matthew chapter 5, it's the word blessed that's translated in Matthew 5. So, in other words, I am convinced, as I've continued studying Matthew 5, that behind Jesus' words, the Beatitudes, as many of you might know them, the blessings, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who are peacemakers, etc., etc., that Those words, blessed, makarios, they have wisdom literature and Jewish wisdom literature in mind, and so there's a background to it. So therefore, it makes sense for us, before we even study Jesus' words, to get the background behind Jesus, because he was a Jewish man who was very familiar with these kind of words. So that's one reason why we're studying it. Another reason is because there is, I think, a very natural break before we start the Sermon on the Mount for us to pause for a bit. And the reason I have joked around, and it's not really a joke, it's serious. We're going to be in Matthew for probably two to three years studying that book is because I do want to take breaks so we're not only doing Matthew for the next two to three years, and that when there's these natural breaks between one chapter to another, we're going to pause and take a short series in the Old Testament. 
So for this instance, we're going to do a short series in the wisdom literature of the wisdom psalms, and we're going to ask the question, according to the Jewish wisdom literature, what is a blessed life and a blessed person? Because Jesus is going to pick up on that. So when we dive back into the Sermon on the Mount, you'll be like, oh, well, that's my hope at least. Maybe if not audibly, oh, but you know. So hopefully you understand the method behind the madness of pausing the series of Matthew, going into the wisdom literature, seeing another genre of scripture, seeing the Old Testament background, and then be further enriched as we finally pick it back up. So this morning, we're going to begin with Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is not only beginning with the first word, blessed, makarios in the Greek, but it is the beginning introduction to the whole psalm. So I'll say more on that in just a minute, but this psalm is essential for us to understand any of the rest of the psalms and wisdom psalms that Jesus probably is alluding to with his own sermon. So look down at me at your scripture, and I want you to notice three sections. So psalms, by the way, is the word for songs. Uh, <clears throat> this is a, sometimes referred to as a song book. That's probably too simplistic to call it that, but it's poetry, the Bible is not one book by itself. It is like a library of books telling one unifying story. So when you open the Bible, realize that when you go in the, a library, you know that there's different sections of books. Well, now we're in a new section of books. We're reading some historical theology, theological biography about Jesus. That's Matthew. Well, well now, now we're going to open up a completely different genre, poetry. And so I want you to notice that the English Standard Version, which is the ones in front of you, the one I'm assuming most of you have in front of you, it has nicely broken down this psalm into three stanzas. This poem has three stanzas. So look at verses one and two, and you'll see they're kind of connected together. Then look at verses three and four, and that's the next stanza. And then five and six, the third stanza. So there's three sections. Now, if you've ever read Hebrew poetry, then you will know that one of its primary ways to communicate and be poetic is not by rhyming, so even if we go back to the original language, they sometimes use like alliteration or assonance where words sound similar. They do do that. But what they most often do is what's called parallelism. So look again at these stanzas, and you'll notice that there's contrasts between two types of people or two categories. So this is very, very typical, and it's part of the reason why this is going to be the first introductory psalm. So if you get Psalm 1, you really get a lot of the wisdom literature. So look, you start in verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the man, and then you have what he does not do. And then in verse 2, but this is what he does do. And then in verse 3, you see what he is like. And then verse 4, you see what he is not like. And then verse 5, you'll see what he will be like in the future. Or will not be like. And then in verse 6, you'll see what he will be like. So there's this contrast between each stanza. And so there's a clear, very simple outline. And so what I want to do is take that outline and just use that for today's message. And my hope is that as we go through that outline, I'm going to ask three questions. And so we're going to start with question number one in verses one and two, first stanza. I'm going to ask, what is the duty of a happy life? And my aim here is to be mostly teaching-oriented and pastorally helpful. That's the, I want to be pastorally helpful in this first one. What is the duty? What should we do to have a happy life. The second question you'll see is in verses three and four, and it's what is the description of a happy life? And here I wanna be motivational, if you wanna put it that way. So after saying what you should do, I wanna motivate you why you should do what we talk about in 
the first question. The duty of a happy life, well, what does that lead to? What's the description of a happy life? And then finally, I want us to ask and answer the question, what is the destination of a happy life? And in that point, I'm hoping it will be worshipful. So from pastorally helpful to motivational to hopefully worshipful, let's end on a note of worship. So first question, what is the duty of a happy life? What is the responsibility for somebody who wants to pursue happiness? Americans, you have this unalienable right, the pursuit of happiness. So how do you find it? Answer in one word, delight. One central idea, if I were to sum it up in a word, I'd say it's delight. In a sentence, I'd say delight in the law of the Lord by meditation, day and night. This is the duty for anyone who would like to pursue true happiness that can be found. Delighting is what seems to be the big idea, but it is not the first thing that's said in this stanza, is it? Blessed, happy. By the way, that's, that's one of the ways that we can easily translate this word. It, it encompasses, I think, probably a variety of English words. I'm fearful that blessed is sometimes seen from you all as something that God does, like God blesses. That's not this word. This is a state of being. It's the word that probably most easily translates into happiness. That's why I keep using that phrase. And so if I say blessed, I mean happy. If I say happy, I mean blessed. One book I read recently this week said Probably a better term could be human flourishing. What is a flourishing, well-being, full, and abundant life? Whatever word you like. I'm going to use happy and blessed probably the most. Okay? So we're talking about a happy man. Blessed is the man who's in this state of well-being. And the first thing it says is he does not do something. He does not do what? He's not first walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Look at the three words, walk, stand, or sit. He does not do this. When you read it in the original Hebrew, as I was doing this week, it's, it's this Hebrew word low. It's like low, 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 L-O. It, he does not do this. He does not do this. He does not do this. Walk, stand, sit. Now, many people think that there's a progression here. It, it sounds quite natural, doesn't it? He's walking along a path because of some counsel he's got. And then he stands. Now, don't read stand as standing in the way, like he's blocking it. That would be like an English idiom, that like you're in the way. The standing in the way is like, he's, he's kind of, I, I'm gonna, I like this. I'm, I'm going to stick here a little bit. And then ultimately he sits. And so one, one commentator put it this way. This walk, stand, sit is thinking, behaving, and then belonging. There's a progression where you first accept counsel. Do you see that? Advice. How many of you have received bad advice? You're like, you eventually led to a destination, and you're like, that did not work out. This is what he's talking about. Wicked people are giving someone, they're, they're giving counsel all the time, actually, in the world, in this day when this poem is written, and they're in the world today. So counsel is being given from wicked people, bad counsel. But this person is saying, no, I'm not going to do that. Because when I do, sometimes I start walking down that path. And then eventually I stand 
I don't just hear it and start thinking about it. I now start doing it. It now becomes a part of my life, a part of the things I do. And then eventually, I'm like seated, right? Like I'm, I'm just, I'm comfortable. This is a part of who I am. It's my identity. Think about modern issues today that people want to call what was once evil, like according to God's eyes. Can you think of something in the world today that people are, are calling good? They're giving counsel. No, this is good. When the Bible calls it evil. And so they're encouraging people, you know, you should walk this path. And eventually those people start doing that. But not only that, then it takes on progression. It becomes who they are. No, this is who I am. I am this thing now. I mean, there's so many different issues in our world today where we're hearing not only bad counsel, but it's being accepted and then it's being celebrated as then you own it and identify with it that now you scoff at everyone else that's not like you. A happy man is not like this. A happy man acknowledges, first and foremost, that there's an unhappy life. Not this way. That might be hard for our postmodern or post-postmodern, however you want to describe the current day that we live in. We're like, no, everybody's got their own truth. This is saying quite clearly, no, there's not. There's not just all these different kinds of truths. There is a bad way and there is a good way that leads to happiness. Now, sometimes people read this first section of not, and it means, well, then we should never associate, spend time with, talk to, or be around people that we would call sinners. And I don't think that that's what this is teaching at all. I think that's driving it way too far. It's saying that do not adopt their attitude, do not behave the way they do, and do not accept their lifestyle and identity. Does not mean that we do not spend time with talking to, loving, and embracing people around us that whoever those people might be that you might call sinners. What seems to be happening here is Hebrew parallelism, poetry. It's, it's giving you very simplistic ideas to meditate on and see how it applies to your life and other people's lives. Sometimes when you read Hebrew poetry, you, you might scoff, you might sit with the scoffers, scoff at the Bible, and say, huh. Yeah, right. It's that black and white. Whenever is the world just that black and white? The righteous and the wicked. Is that what you all Christians think you are in this room? Just a bunch of righteous people and everybody else that does not go to church and couldn't make it today? They're the unrighteous, the sinners. I just want to make it clear. That's not at all what I think. I don't think that's the majority of the people in this room think that are members of this church. That it's just this simple black and white thing. That's, that's not the point of Hebrew poetry or wisdom literature to nuance everything. It's to give you very stark black and white contrasts so you can start meditating on it as we'll see in just a second. And so what's the contrast here in this parallelism? There's counsel from the wicked. There, there's a way to live, there's a path. And then there is counsel from the Lord. There's a path, there's two ways to live. You're either hearing the voice of God or you're hearing the voice of the wicked, the enemy, the lies of the tempter. And by the way, this is very similar to the Sermon on the Mount. One of the reasons why we're studying this Hebrew poetry is because when we get to the Sermon on the Mount, not only are you going to see the word makarios, blessed, in the very first part of the psalm, but what's the ending of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount for those of you who have read it, studied it before? Have you thought about this before? Well, there's two ways to live. There's a good tree that bears good fruit. And there's a bad tree 
that bears no fruit. And you'll know a tree by its fruit. In fact, there's two ways to live. There's a man who enters through the narrow gate, and then there's a man who enters through the wide gate, and the wide gate leads to destruction. In fact, there's two ways to live. There's a man, the wise man, builds his house upon a rock. But you see, the foolish man builds his house on a sand. See, the more we start looking at these Hebrew poetry, wisdom literature, parallelisms, you're going to start thinking, oh, yeah, that's exactly what Jesus is doing. So, two ways for you to think, behave, and belong. If you want to have a happy life, admit that there is, in fact, a bad way, that there is a happy way that leads to abundant, fulfilled life. Choose the path, then, of what? What's our answer? Delight. Delight in what? Delight in the law of the Lord. And immediately, I think we need to pause, stop. What gets into your mind? You hear, delight in the law of the Lord. Those do not go together, Pastor Phil. Laws, delighting, rejoicing. Since when do I open up the law book for Palatine, Illinois, or my school, or the job place I work at, and I just read over the laws and say, oh, how I delight in them. You know, like, nobody does this. Who reads reads laws in Leviticus? How many of you read through the Bible from time to time, and you get to Leviticus, and you're like, yippee, I'm delighting. You're like, grueling, it's difficult, and whatever, you know, what's going on here? And I don't mean that to mean you shouldn't read Leviticus. I just mean there's times where we read laws, and we're not soaring to the mountaintops. So what's, what's meant by this word law? That's, that's really what I'm getting at. What are we to actually delight in? The word here is Torah, Torah. I do think law is okay of a translation, but many, many people have correctly pointed out that the word in its most original basic meaning is instructions. So let me, let me put it even a step further as a basic thing. Delight in the ways of God. Delight in God's ways. The way he created the world and the way that he has asked us to live in this world That way is good. It is for your good. And the more you think about how God designed the world and designed you and designed us and think about how that applies to your life and then implement it, you you hear the counsel, you start standing in it, and then eventually you own it, you belong to it, you sit in it. You identify with that counsel from God and his ways. You start delighting. Oh my, this leads to blessing. Oh my, this leads to happiness in my life. That's the idea. Torah means God's ways, his instructions. A little fun fact, by the way. Torah is also referenced to the first five books of the Bible where most of the laws are, which is why many people have translated it as law. That's why it's here, law of the Lord. Because the first five books have a lot of laws in them. But in fact, the first five books have a lot of stories in them too. The first five books are about instructions through stories. And so to meditate on the law is actually meditate on the story of God, to meditate on God's ways and his plans in the world and how his laws and ways incorporate into the grander story. So that's one thing. Another thing is I want you to look at your Bibles. I want you to notice before verse 1, there's a small, short subscription about the way of the righteous. But then one, look above that. Do you see in capital letters? Do you see something there? Book 1. This is interesting because 
if Psalm 1 is the introduction to the Psalms, like the whole 150 Psalms, and book 1 is, this is the first one of book 1, and that there's five books, it corresponds then most likely with the five books of Moses. So in other words, if you do a, a thorough study on the whole book of these Hebrew poems, you'll notice that there's actually a story being told in the poems. That collectively, when you piece them all together, that there's a rhythm and there's a pattern. And that there's an editor that went through, probably Ezra, some people have suggested. And he has certainly put certain psalms in certain places. So, for example, look at the script that is underneath Psalm 3. So it says, save me, O my God, in uh, right above the number. And then do you see the little subscript? Now, by the way, the subscript is in the Hebrew text. So people see these as like inspired descriptions of what's going on. And you see it says, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Now look at number four, to the choir master with stringed instruments. And then what does it say again? A psalm of, of David. And then look at number five, to the choir master for the flutes. A psalm of, and what is it? David. And then look at number six. Uh, okay, you could keep doing that because the first book is almost all, with the exception of two psalms, psalms of David. In other words, it does not take much work for you to start figuring out that these are collected together for a reason. So Psalm 1 is not just the introduction of book 1 and the rest of the Psalms, but it also, I think, tells us that have your delight in the story of God, in the ways of God, and do it by meditating on this new law. And what I mean by that is this new Torah. I think the Psalms are five books and that they're representing themselves as like a copy of the Old Testament Torah, the first five books of the Bible, but in song form. So the first one is telling you then, fill your mind and your life with meditations on the Torah, the, the first five books of the Bible that are now being told in story form through poems. That might have nerded some of you out, like I have no idea what you're talking about, but for some of you that are following, that's what I think a big part of this is talking about. Delight in the law of the Lord means the ways of God, very simply put, but more particularly, as you're starting this book, as you're reading Psalms, read through the Psalms over and over and see the ways of God in the story that he's telling you and read it again and again. Which gets us to our next question, not in the sermon, but in the, in the, in the language here. Delight yourself in the law of the Lord. And then look at that next parallel phrase. There's parallel even in repetition. So delighting in the law of the Lord. How do I do that? By meditating on his law day and night. So what does that word meditate mean? And I mentioned at the beginning of the service what it does not mean. Meditation is not like an Eastern practice. If you've studied Eastern religions where like if you imagine somebody that's like crossed legs, you know, and they're like, Mm, empty all of your mind and thoughts, you know, sometimes yoga practices, uh, not the exercise of yoga for any of you that exercise yoga, but the idea of just, just clear out your mind completely and don't think about anything. Christian meditation that's being referred to here is the word haga, and it means to mutter, and it is not silent, and it is not about clearing out your mind. The word haga is used actually in the very next psalm. Look at Psalm 2. And then look at verse 1 of Psalm 2. This is the same word for meditation that we have. Why do the nations rage and the peoples haggah in vain? Now here it's translated as plot in vain. Because it's talking about people that are trying to 
destroy God's people. And so they're like whispering together. They're plotting. They're like, hey, psst, hey. I think we should do this. It's like lower, whispered, hushed-toned voices. If you've got a plan to like overthrow a kingdom, you don't want that plan to be shouted on the rooftops. It'll ruin your plan, right? That's what it's talking about here, plotting. So it's this quiet, hush sound. And so there's a couple ways to think about that. What then is meditation? Well, obviously, it is not silence. It is active interaction with the ideas, the texts, the story, the song. I would argue that he's probably saying this word Haggah in the beginning here to set the tone for all the psalms because they were to be sung. As if you have like a song stuck in your head. How many of you have ever had a song stuck in your head on the radio? And you're like, oh gosh, don't. That song, it's now stuck in my head. I can't stop singing it. You go to Disney World, it's a small world after all, like that one or any of the other ones. Classic songs that get stuck in your head. I think there's a sense to which you're supposed to read the psalms, sing the psalms, actively participate by singing and have it stuck in your head and in your soul. And it says, how long should it be stuck in your head and soul? All day long. All night long. That then is the duty. That is the duty of a happy person. The one simple idea in the first stanza is, what should we do if we want to pursue a happy life? It is to sing over, it is to meditate, it is to continually repeat and talk to yourself and with the scriptures all day long. That's what's being described here. And I think a lot of times it's easy to say, okay, application, practically, pastorally, what should we do as a church to apply this to our lives? Well, read the Bible. That, friends, does not quite cut it. This is an oral culture. They did not read books. Most of the people would have been illiterate. When he's talking about meditating day and night, he's not talking about reading books and reading them again and then reading them again. Now, we can do that. We're a textual culture. We're blessed to have the Bible printed in English, in your lap, multiple copies, on your phone, on the computer. They did not have that. Oftentimes, you would go once a week to the temple or synagogue. You'd hear one message. And the obligation, the duty, is that that would just sit all week long. You'd just hear a phrase, a word, you'd hear an idea, and you just keep thinking about how this applies to your life, how good it is. And I think sometimes, honestly, I think sometimes we have created a culture in America where we have information overload, where we never actually go deep on an idea, we just get the next idea. So think of it like when I'm with my children. I have a two-year-old son, his name's John, when he wants to read books, do you know what books he picks? The same ones. Every time, no matter how many times we've read it. And then after we're done, do you know what he wants to do with that book? Read it again. And then read it again. And I'm like, I'm tired of reading this book. Because I think I have been trained from our educational system to just, I need to learn something new. I need something. Okay, we, we got that one, John. How about a new book, John? No, I want that book. There's something childlike that I think we need to learn about this practice. There's something good about you hearing maybe just one message this week and just keep sitting on it. Just keep chewing on it all week long, sucking on it like a cough drop. I've had a cold all week, so I've been sucking on cough drops, you know? Images in my head. Just let it line your throat so you can talk on Sunday morning. That's meditation. 
So yes, reading. Yes, we should read the Bible. Yes, I want to encourage reading the Bible. But I think that reading is a means to an end to get to meditation. If any of you make a daily discipline practice of reading, let me tell you that if you just have this practice, blessed is the man who walks not to the counsel of the wicked and get to the bottom, but the way of the wicked will perish. Okay, close the Bible. And then let me pray, and then I move on in my day. I'm not saying that it's bad. I'm just saying you're missing out. And several years ago, uh, uh, Christine gave me one of the best presents I've ever received in my entire life. Best birthday gift. She gave me a gift of going away for a personal retreat at a campgrounds in Maryland when we were living in Washington, D.C. So I drove a few hours, and I had a silent campground on this beautiful overlook of the Chesapeake Bay, and I spent three days trying to implement this idea of meditation. Never done it before in my life. And I would say the most soul-enriching thing I have ever done is that retreat to then lead me to a practice of regular disciplining myself to meditate on God's Word. Because the happy life is one that constantly is thinking and meditating and applying and wrestling with. We should never master the Bible. It should constantly be mastering us through our meditation. Is that what your life is like? If it's not, you're probably not very happy. This is the duty of a happy life. And so I want to encourage you in it. I want you to think about singing good songs and having them stuck in your head, like Bible songs, songs we sing here. You ever wonder, why do we sing? Isn't it weird that we get together and we sing, and we don't even sing like normal songs that people sing on the radio? And then we sing to God. And we sing out loud and people raise their hands. And we, I don't know, there's times where I think like as an outsider coming in, it's, it's weird. But it's not weird if you have this practice of meditation and songs getting stuck in your soul and in your head. It's so, so helpful. So I, I commend singing good, theologically rich songs. It's good to even sing songs at times that repeat things. When you read the Psalms as our a songbook, you'll find that there's repetition. So we sing, praise to the Lord, praise to the Lord, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. By the way, hallelujah is the way the psalm books end. All the last five psalms are hallelujah, and it means praise Yahweh. If you were singing that earlier, I don't even know what I'm singing. It means praise the Lord. And we repeated that again and again as we sang, praise to the Lord, hallelujah, praise the Lord. And, and it's not to just repeat it because, well, we don't have any other words to say. The songwriter just got tired, and so it just said hallelujah four times. It's to meditate. That's the point. So, what is the duty for a happy life? It is to delight. Delight in the law of the Lord. I want you to not just know God's ways and, and say to yourself, I know that's good for me. I want you to delight in God's ways and say, yes, I believe with all of my soul that that is actually good for me. I want that. Is that happening right now? Is there any of you that are thinking, yeah, I know, I know, I need, I need to do that. I don't think that's going to cut it, guys. You need a work of God's spirit in you that says, no, I want that. I so desperately want to be that kind of person. Not just a happy person, but the kind of person that delights in God's ways. Not just begrudging you like, got to go to church. Oh, I can't wait. 
Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever read God's word and studied it and been like, that was so helpful and encouraging? Have you ever hungered for it? That's what we're talking about. And if you don't have any motivation to do that, if that's what we're supposed to do, and you're like, I don't know. I don't know if it sounds that good. Let's move on to our second question. What is the description of a happy life? And these final two points will be much shorter and simpler, by the way. The main teaching I wanted to give was encouraging you to know what is a happy life. It is a life that is filled with delight. But why should you do that? Because look at the description in verses 3 and 4. And see if this does not motivate you to want to pursue meditation on God's ways. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. What's the one word that you could summarize? What's the description of somebody who has a happy, blessed life? Blessed is the man. Deep. One word. He's got depth to him. In a sentence, I'd say it this way. The description of the happy life. The happy person has deep roots like an oak tree by streams, multiple streams, notice. And it can withstand all circumstances, all seasons, as you see. And then no matter what comes, it prospers. That is a much more profound definition and description of happiness than I think you can find in any self-help book that is out there. The happiness we're talking about is not circumstance-based. It is not, well, this good thing happened to me. Yippee, I'm happy. Oh, this bad thing happened. Oh, I'm sad. That is a reality of Christians. When I'm talking about a happy life, I am not talking about a trivial happiness. I'm talking about a deep-rooted happiness, one that can withstand storms that come. One that can, can withstand tornadoes and winds, whatever the season it uh, says in this, in this text. How about drought? Oh, there's streams of water around it, even when there's no rain coming down for days and days and days. This tree is strong. Anyone want to be that way? Because the happiness that we're talking about, the Bible is not so black and white, that it doesn't get that there are days that are going to be very difficult. There will be seasons that will not lead to, I'm happy. I'm just, yay, happy. That's not the kind of happiness we're talking about. A blessed, flourished life can withstand and endure all circumstances. Happiness is not a result of our circumstances. Another thing you need to realize is happiness is not found by pursuing happiness. Oh, man, was that helpful for me this week. If your aim is to pursue happiness, you will not get this message. But if your aim is to delight yourself in the law of the Lord, the fruit is happiness. Deep roots of happiness. It's very different. It's like when your aim is to be Making someone in your life a friend, like I just so desperately want them to be your friend, you become so obnoxious and annoying that you're never going to be that person's friend. But when you pursue to love this person, to just love them, you find that they end up loving you and now you have a friendship. This is the way the world works. To find happiness is not to make happiness your end goal. It's to realize it is the byproduct, it is the fruit of prospering when you have grounded yourself 
by streams of living water. Those streams, by the way, are certainly God's word. They're certainly the law of the Lord that's being meditated on day and night. So that when the dark days come, when the seasons of life feel like there's a desert and it's a dry and weary land where there is no water, you can still go down deep and reach up nutrients for your life to get through these circumstances. The word planted, he is planted by streams. It is a passive verb, meaning that a other gardener or somebody has planted the tree. You don't, you don't plant yourself there. You can see even in the beginning of this psalm that this, this whole thing that we're talking about is ultimately an act of God doing something for you. So this all requires, I believe, the work of the Holy Spirit, especially if you move to the New Testament, you'll see that. And you see that the tree does not wither and it's being contrasted with the chaff. What is chaff? Chaff is like dust, if you want to put it very simply comes off of grain when they're trying to take up the crops. So if you imagine being a farmer and getting the good grain from the wheat, there's going to be some like dust that lays around, some of the extra portions that are just, they're, they're useless. The scriptures say that they just burn the chaff away because it's just leftover waste. Think of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, by the way. The salt that loses its saltiness, it's worth nothing. It just gets thrown away. That's the chaff. The chaff has no roots. It has no life. Consider and meditate on this contrast, the description of the two. If the duty is to delight because the overflowing result of delighting in God's ways, when they become a joy to you, is deep roots so that you can withstand all circumstances, then how does this happen? How can this even be possible? Look at our last stanza, our last question. What is the destination of a happy life? Verses 5 and 6. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. What is the destination of a happy life? One word. Death. In one sentence, I would describe it this way. We, in this room, were all born into the world as the sinners, as the mockers, as the wicked. We were destined for death, and as you see here, perishing and judgment. All of us are in that category. But Jesus the only righteous man, the only man who lived a fully happy life in the term of a blessed life. He died for us. The answer and possibility, can happiness happen? Well, think about this very plainly. Who are you in this psalm apart from Jesus? Without Jesus, are you the righteous? Do you delight in God's ways all day long, day and night, for your whole life? Do you feel as if you're planted by streams of living water? Does that describe you? Or does any bad circumstance come and it just topples you over? Every wind and wave just knocks you down. Let's be honest. We look more like the chaff. 
we, we act a lot more like the wicked. We receive the counsel of the wicked very regularly. So then what is our destination? Judgment. There's a play on words, by the way. In verse 5, it says that, that the sinners, they will not stand in the judgment. The reason that's a play on words is because it reminds you back to verse 1. Anybody who wants to stand in the way of sinners will have no legs to stand on the day of judgment. Of the beginning and the end kind of tie themselves up together. And friends, you and I, that's the state that we find ourselves in when we were born into this world. But thanks be to God, there was a righteous person. There was a righteous man. And if you stand with Jesus, not with the sinners, he will give you legs to stand in the day of judgment. You can know that when you read this text, those last five, verses five and six, those last two verses that parallel each other, you will know that your future is bright. Like how, how can you be happy if you know that ultimately at the end of your life you're going to receive judgment? As C.S. Lewis said, if you aim for earth now, and you just have a really happy earth, but you don't get heaven, it won't lead to happiness. But if you aim at heaven, you will not only get heaven, but you will get earth thrown in. The blessed life can start now with the new creation that Jesus creates as we stand with him, the only righteous. Now, some people, when they hear this kind of teaching on the Old Testament, they start to scoff. (laughs) Scoff because they say, wait, this was written way before Jesus. This text is not talking about Jesus. Why are you talking about Jesus from Psalm 1? Why are you importing Paul's ideas in this Hebrew poetry? This is not Romans. Don't talk about righteous being by having your righteousness in Jesus. Question, where did Paul get his idea about righteousness being in Jesus? Turn with me to Romans chapter 3, by the way. Romans chapter 3. Where did Paul get his idea that you are made righteous and your future is bright, your destination is happy and blessed? Where did he get that idea from? The Psalms. If you turn to Romans 3, this is page 941 in the black Bibles around you. On the top of page 941, or if you just look in your Bibles to Romans 3, verse 10, listen to this description. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their path are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That does not sound encouraging, does it? But guess what that is? That is a string of psalms about how no one on the earth, Jew or Gentile, any of us here, we are not the righteous man. He got that from the Psalms. You know what else he got from the Psalms? Look at chapter 4 in Romans. 
Look at in the middle of chapter 4, there should be like an indent, at least in the ESV. It indents it out because it's a quote from a psalm. Look at Psalm chapter 4. I mean, look at Romans 4, verse 7. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed, that's our word. Happy is the man whom the Lord will not count his sin. And he goes on to explain the glorious doctrine that you will be the righteous one if you are standing with Jesus. In other words, the only way to be a Christian and read Psalm 1, I believe, is to read it like Paul does and get from the Psalms the idea that the righteous and the unrighteous, well, all of us are unrighteous except for one, Jesus. And guess what? That righteous person took on the punishment and endured all kinds of seasons, difficult, painful, awful seasons of pain and suffering and persecution. And he did all of it by having the Psalms meditating on day and night Think about this as we close. The only righteous one that did not deserve to perish perished on your behalf and as he did so, as he was perishing, he had on his lips two psalms. As Jesus died on the cross, he, he, as far as we know, he said seven things. There's seven different sayings of Jesus as he hangs on the cross. In the hardest, most difficult possible season that anyone on this earth has ever gone through, Jesus hangs on the cross with all of God's darkness and wrath being poured out on him. And as he does so, he is saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he's quoting a psalm, and he's quoting Psalm 22, and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The psalms are on his lips as he dies for you so that you could be righteous so that you could stand with Jesus and his death and say, that death is now my death. I'm not going to go the counsel of the wicked. I'm going to go the way of Jesus. I want to be with him. I want to be like him. I want to stand with him. I want to sit. I want to identify with Jesus, his death on my behalf. I deserve that death, but Jesus took it for me. If that's you, my friend, you can be happy now and you will be happy forever. That's what a blessed life is. And Jesus showed us the way by meditating all the way to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we want to give you thanks now for Jesus Christ. Thank you for his righteous life. He heard the counsel of the wicked. But he did not go down that path when he was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. He stood up to the way of sinners and he did not sit down with the scoffers. He sat down at the right hand of the Father, gloriously righteous over all of heaven and earth, pouring out his spirit on us. God, we thank you. We thank you that there is now the opportunity for blessed lives, Happy lives that can endure every situation and season that whatever we do can prosper. God, we thank you that there is a room full of people sitting in front of me right now and that they're doing all kinds of things this week, but whatever they do, whatever is going on, it can prosper this week. And that even if their week is very difficult, by meditating on your word day and night as they get your law and your ways And they love it, and they pursue it, and they want it more than anything else in this world. 
they can find this deep abiding joy that goes beyond any earthly circumstances. I pray, God, for that for these people. I pray that for myself. I pray that we will grow as a church in these ways and we will learn how to reflect the life of Jesus, the full and abundant life that he offers. We pray this in his name. Amen.